welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters like you how to have more turkeys on your property and more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this through tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. So before we get into this week's episode, let me paint you a picture. You wake up early, go under the turkey woods, you get a turkey goblin on the roost. He's gobbling pretty well. You sit down to him and you wait on him to fly down. You call, he responds, he comes close but not quite close enough you just can't see him and he ventures off after about 30 minutes you get up you reposition call to him again he gobbles starts to come in again this time he calls in a hen you have to get up and run the hen off so that she doesn't go to him and spoil your hunt you're able to sit back down without disturbing the turkey call to him he responds, you sit, you wait, 15, 20 minutes goes by, nothing. He gobbles again in the same location. He's hung up out there at 65 yards. So you get up, you reposition again, you call to him, he gobbles, he starts to come your direction. Finally, after three hours of playing with this turkey, you see him at 50 yards, closing the gap. You see him 45. He gets closer at 40 yards. He steps behind a tree. He stands behind the tree for 15 minutes, gobbling sporadically. You don't know if he's turned around and walked away or if he's just standing still behind the tree. Finally, you see a head stick out from the side of the tree and you're able to get a shot and put him down. By the time you get to the turkey, he's flopped around on the ground. He's flopped out the majority of the feathers off of his breast, a lot of his feathers around his rear end broken a tail fan feather and after it being such a good hunt you're still so excited that you do a little celebration after your celebration you look down and you see that the turkey has three beards the longest of which is 11 and a half inches you cannot believe that you've killed a triple bearded turkey that's your first multi-bearded turkey you've ever killed so you roll him over look at his spurs and sure enough inch and a half the size of this turkey is unreal. You've never killed a turkey this big before. So you take several more pictures, send them out to your buddies so they can tell you how great of a turkey hunter they, that you are. You take the turkey's head, fold it up in his wing, put the turkey in your vest, begin that mile and a half jaunt back to the truck. You get back to the truck, pull the turkey out of the vest, throw him in the back of the truck, drive into town. When you get to town, you gotta go to, to a couple of your buddies' offices to show them the turkey so that they can see it live and in person and tell you how great of a turkey hunter that you are once again after you do that one of your buddies says hey let's go eat lunch so you leave the turkey in the back of the truck drive over to the restaurant eat lunch 
run into another friend there, bring him outside to show him the turkey. And he looks at the turkey and he says, that is an unbelievably big turkey. Andy, are you getting it mounted? And you say, you know what, I hadn't thought about it. But I think I will. I, I'm, I'm probably not going to kill another turkey this size in my lifetime. And your buddy looks at the turkey and he says, yep, you're definitely not going to kill another turkey this big in your life. You have to get this bird mounted. So after the turkey's been sitting out in the sun for six hours, you decide to take him to the house, put him in a garbage bag, put him in the deep freeze to let him freeze before you take him to the taxidermist and next thing you know a year and a half goes by and your wife says to you you know what it's time to clean out the deep freeze so she goes opens up the deep freeze and she says what are you going to do with this turkey are you going to take it to the taxidermist or do we just need to throw it away and you say no 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 i'm going to take it to the taxidermist i'm going to get this one mounted up this is the biggest turkey i've ever killed so you put the turkey in the truck you take him to the taxidermist you get to the taxidermist shop he opens up the bag and he says, congratulations, man, that is one heck of a turkey. The problem is, I can't do anything with it. The head's all shot up. Not only that, but it's freezer burned after sitting in your deep freeze for a year and a half. The feathers are all torn up. They're pulled out. I, I just am not going to be able to mount this turkey and give you a product that you're going to be happy with. So you're left with cutting the feet and the beard off of the turkey hanging them on the wall with the rest of your feet and beards and that's what our guest is going to talk about today our guest today is harry whitehead with gunner's taxidermy and harry has been in the taxidermist business for a long time he's going to tell us how to maintain our turkeys after we kill them so that we can get the best possible mount so without further ado here's harry whitehead all right, welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. And with me this week, I am very excited to have Harry Whitehead with us. He is the owner of Gunner's Taxidermy in Kentucky. Harry has been in the business since 19, well, excuse me, the uh, Gunner's Taxidermy was founded in 1983. And um, Harry and his staff of taxidermists there have won quite a large number of awards and competitions so there's really not any question about whether or not Harry knows what he's doing. Some of those accomplishments that he has under his belt are uh, the second in world turkey, a seven-time grand national wild turkey champion, the North American champion for turkey on the National Taxidermist Association competition, mm-hmm. Best of show seven times at the NWTF. Best of category for wild turkey competition 15 times. And the Wasco Award winner four times at the NWTF National Championships as well. So I think uh, Harry and his staff over there got a little bit of experience with turkeys is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, we've been very um, fortunate. Uh, we've been very fortunate that our where they're competing, and, and uh, look forward to continue to do that. Well, and, you know, I, I think the uh, the quality of your work, you know, is is uh, obviously is, is recognized with all the awards and everything else, and, you know, I think that people can um, look at the quality if, if they have any questions about it on your website and, and see that you definitely do good work. But, you know, one thing that that I was pretty impressed with um, and just looking at your website is, you know, you, it, 
it seems like you not only do taxidermy, but you are very involved in educating um, not just the general public, but other taxidermists as well um, with your work. And, you know, you, you have um, a good bit of information on your website about, you know, freeze-dried turkey heads, how to prepare the uh, animal for taxidermy and all that as well. So I think your website is is well worth somebody's time to go on and check all that out. And we'll get into uh, uh, how people can find you on your website here in just a little bit. But let's jump into the interview. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where well, are you from originally and all that kind of my, fun stuff? I'm actually from eastern Kentucky. Um, and my family moved here. I wanted to be around maybe better schools back in the 50s uh, when I was born. But we, we moved to, in the Lexington area. Uh, in the 60s, and then, uh, of course, I started, I had a fascination for wildlife yeah, at a very young age. I loved collecting insects, and that's basically what got me started into this taxidermy. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I taught myself. I, I ordered a little little uh, mail-order deal from the Northwestern School of Taxidermy, just a little little deal you got in the back of Field and Stream and, and basically taught myself uh develop my own techniques and those techniques have been fine tuned. Uh they really work for me and I'm I'm showing what I do now to other taxidermists all over the country. I'm a uh I'm a national judge. I, I go to different shows. I've judged the National Taxidermy Association. I've given seminars at the World Taxidermy Show. Uh, and uh, so yeah, I, I travel quite a bit showing my techniques and, and how I do things, and and it helps taxidermists all over the country to elevate taxidermy as a whole, not just my business, but I, I think that if other people are elevated, I, I come up with them, so that's, true. Uh, that's my train of thought there. Yeah, very true, and you know, I mean, that, to me, that's a sign of a, of a true professional. A lot of people look at their competition and say, no, I'm not doing anything to help them, because in that, uh, you know, that they're just going to use that knowledge to compete against me. But, you know, somebody in your shoes with your attitude and philosophy on business of, of you know, helping others, like you said, it does elevate you. And, you know, I'm a true believer in that if you're good at something and you want to get better, surround yourself by people who do it just as good, if not better than you. Absolutely. And uh, so that that's uh, uh, very admirable. Um, so when, I mean, you, you mentioned – that you bought a kit, or a, you know, I guess really kind of a kit and a, and a book out of back of the magazine. But when when did you really kind of get into it? And oh, that I mean, was when how, I, it was really it wasn't even a kit. It was just a little instruction manual. It came in ten or eleven uh, little courses that they would give you a book, and you, you would you would complete that section and then send in a picture, and it was. Uh, you know, it was just kind of a little hokey deal. I mean, that's how a lot of taxidermists had started was, was with the Northwestern School of Taxidermy. And uh, this was back in the, I go on, this was back in the middle 60s when I actually mm -hmm. first started doing this. And uh, and I, I did it through high school, you know, just uh, as a part-time thing for myself. And then once I went to college, I I went to college at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. I was there on a basketball scholarship. 
And uh, okay. but that's how I made my extra money was mountain birds for for hunters that were down there in the Charleston area, and um, that quickly turned into more work than I could do. Uh, so once I got out of college, I, in college I studied comparative anatomy and zoology and biology, and, and so that gave me a uh, insight onto the structure and function of how animals are are shaped and their musculature and, and skeletal systems and and uh, that didn't. That just helped me in my taxidermy, and so. Uh, right. But once I got out of college, I, I started gunners, and, and here we are today. Yeah, you know I've mentioned already that you do turkeys, that you you know will mount turkeys. What other types of animals do you do? And really, you know, a lot of taxidermists as you're trying to specialize in something do you guys specialize in anything in particular other than turkeys and you know well yeah there's you... uh i mean a lot of taxidermists are uh, are good at one thing they're either good at deer heads or they're good at turkeys or they're good at fish that's one of the things we take pride in we're good at everything that we do uh we've won awards uh, best of categories best of shows with with game heads, with whitetails, with fish, with small game, with large game. And right now we've got we've got a uh, a leopard, uh, a full mount leopard in here. We do a lot of African work. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got uh, shoulder mount elk, uh, full mount deer. I mean, yeah, there's nothing that I mean we've done we've done elephants in here before. So um, you know we we yeah. do the whole spectrum of anything that. Uh, sportsmen can go out and acquire. We're prepared to take care of it. You know, I've and you you probably don't know this about me. I've been to Africa a couple of times, and that's always a concern of you know bringing any type of animal into the country is the time that that the animal is outside of the country and how that hide or the animal is is cared for before it's even shipped to the U.S. to a taxidermist here, what um, what do you typically see? And I'm not necessarily talking about African game in particular, but really any type of game, whether that's a oscillated turkey in Mexico or a Gould's turkey in Mexico. What are some of the issues that you see with those animals when they come into you from out of the country? And how can we as hunters, when we go on a hunt like that, how can we better prepare the outfitter or even the person on the ranch that that's handling the game for us to say, hey, you know, do handle my turkey this way so that I know it's going to be in good shape when it goes to Harry or John Doe, the taxidermist. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge concern. I mean, I, I've been to Africa 10 times and Having said that, I, I know how things have got to be handled uh, in the salt in the salt pile, uh, and how they need to be rotated to circumvent having any hair slippage or whatever. So, uh, the best thing that I can I can advise hunters that are traveling abroad is is to have a relationship with your taxidermist. Make sure your taxidermist is well versed in how this goes too. Uh, because it's a whole lot more involved than just taking care of the skins. While there, there's there are all, there's all the import issues that are 
that are rising daily almost. It's uh, mm-hmm. kind of frustrating. Um, but we'll get into to that part of it. Uh, let's stick with the handling of the skins first as far as uh, this show's kind of about turkey, so we'll stick with that. Um, the, the, your mound is going to be just as good as the skin that you get to your taxidermist. Uh, if it's got right. feathers pulled out everywhere and it's been drugged behind the truck, you, you, it's, going to, <laughs> it's not going to look good. <laughs> uh, even, even, uh, and it starts from the shot. Uh, I mean, even here in the States, when I, when I shoot a bird, I immediately get to the bird and hopefully it's not flopping yet, but because there's a little period of time there before they do start flopping that they just kind of lay there. Right. And, and I'll reach in very watching the spurs because I've been spurred before and that's not fun either, but not at all. You reach in there and you grab those legs and you hold that bird up and then you let him flop. And basically his wings are just going to take off. And I mean, you have to hold on there for a minute, but that's a normal motion and the wings are going to, you're not going to lose a feather. Right. Um, so you want to get to that bird immediately, hold him up and, and you hold him until he quits flopping until he's, until he's done. Uh, and, that way, he's not going to pull out his scat feathers, or he's not going to kick out his breast feathers, or you know, or roll down the hill, or whatever. Exactly. Uh, so at that point, you've got, you know, you're taking a step to ensure that your mount's going to be nice. Now, the next issue that you're going to have is whether you have the knowledge to be able to skin it yourself, or be able to instruct your outfitter to to have his guys skin it properly. Uh, there are new techniques now. They used to split them just straight up and down the breast, but now most taxidermists like to go from leg to leg uh, mm. and remove the legs, remove the tail, remove the head, and it basically comes apart, and that's all assembled by the taxidermist. So having said that, I, it's good to have a good relationship with your taxidermist to where you, as a hunter that's traveling abroad, can instruct how he wants it done, uh, and he right. can diagram these things out for you and, and, and show you. Now, this doesn't affect the meat at all. Once you get this thing skinned, uh, you know, there's your meat. You can heart, you can, you know, it doesn't affect the meat whatsoever. So, right. Um, that's, that's my suggestion there as far as scaring and proper care. Now, a lot of times when you're in the jungles of Mexico for oscillated or even in some instances the ghoul's bird, uh, refrigeration is not readily available, so the bird mm-hmm. needs to be either salted or boraxed and then kept cool. Um, especially with oscillated, you want to keep that head as cool as possible because it's really susceptible to slippage of the uh, epidermis on the head. And then right. when you send that to a freeze-drying company, um, of which, by the way, we are, freeze drying company too and i see this frequently is the head will freeze dry more black and that just makes it a little bit more difficult uh as far as when you're painting it uh it doesn't give it a nice fresh uh fresh look so yeah um and sometimes people like to use artificial heads i i don't particularly care for those because you you lose detail as far as the little hairs and feathers right. and, and all that and, and detail to me is what everything's all about so uh, yeah but anyway yeah just to recap real quick uh, you know the, the taking care of your bird starts from the shot and if it's skinned properly and then packaged properly 
then you can get it back to the states and and into a taxidermist and, and your mount. At least to that point, you've done everything you can do to ensure that you're going to have a good mount. Right. Yeah. You know, you you mentioned about uh, dragging a turkey behind the truck. I've had to kill a few of them that way because they <laughs> they just wouldn't die. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, prone to uh, not shoot one real good, so I have to you know, kill them by any means possible. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to something that you said, you know, about not being careful how you pick that turkey up after you shoot him or before he starts flopping and be sure to not get spurred. Um, good friend of mine was a uh, turkey outfitter for a long time and, um, or turkey guide, I should say. And, and he, um, he and I were in, Florida, Osceola hunting, and I killed my turkey. He was with me, and he said, well, you know, run over there and grab him. He said, what we always do is just grab him by the neck and hold him up and let him flop. And he said, they can't reach you. If you grab him right there at the head, they cannot reach you with their feet, with the spurs. Do not do that. They can reach you. They can reach you. You've got to hold they, him. You, can't, you can only hold him out so far. <laughs> that's right. They will reach you, and you will go to the emergency room to get stitches. And I'm telling you that from experience. So, uh, well, it's, you it's, know, I, I mean, I, I I had to go to the emergency room to get stitches holding by the legs too. That's where you've got to be. I mean, it, this was a Rio that I just kind of reached out and grabbed him one-handed because he was kind of in a situation there, uh, reaching over some briars and stuff, and. And I should have not done that and went around there and grabbed him with two hands. That way you can keep the legs separated. But he got caught in my glove and started twisting and just drove that daggone spur right into my, right between my thumb and forefinger. And I mean, that's not any fun yeah. too, but you know, I mean, that, just, you got to be careful, but that's what I do. I mean, that's, you go in there and you hold on as tight as you can and, and keep those legs separated and, and wait for him to expire. Yeah. You're telling us stories about you killing turkeys, so you take a special interest in turkeys, obviously, being a turkey hunter. And, uh, you know, some taxidermists don't turkey hunt, but yet they they mount turkeys. And, you know, that to me, one thing is uh, that I look for in a taxidermist is, do you turkey hunt? And, you know, if, if you turkey hunt, then you take a special interest in the sport. You take a special interest in your work because you truly understand what that trophy is all about and uh well I mean, so, you, you got to have attitude when you're mounting a bird i mean things carry themselves differently um mm-hmm. you know i mean just the different attitudes and different ways that a turkey would carry himself in a specific situation is is you know that's part of, and that's what i try to exemplify in my taxidermy. i mean that gives you an x amount of realism in your mount and i cause we just don't mount a turkey on a stick we try to, right. we, yeah, I mean, we we try to put some realism in the mount, even though if it's got a very simple base, you can still have that same walking with one, you know, with the heel up on one foot and the tail canted to one side. I mean, there's always motion in our mounts, and that's what mm-hmm. we try to portray when we're, when we're doing taxidermy. Speaking of turkey hunting, when and how did you first get into turkey hunting? How long, it, well, how long have you been turkey I'll hunting? I was on a deer lease up in Owen County here. I guess this was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, you'd always see these turkeys, and and I wasn't really fired up about it, you know, while you're deer hunting. But 
I tried to go into one spring, and I found out those jokers were difficult. Mm-hmm. So it did not come easy for me. I, and I'm actually deaf in my right ear, so that made it even that more difficult because I could, while I could hear them gobbling, I couldn't tell which way it was coming from. Exactly. And so I was, I was a sight hunter, uh, and just basically guessed which way they're coming. And you know, if you're in the woods, but then you you you, you try to get to the fields, and that way your your sight works a little bit better. But that that enabled me to learn how to call real well too. Uh, I mean, I'm no competition caller, but I can call birds. Uh, it's all right. about cadence and timing and, and knowing when to do it and when not to do it. And, but uh, I shot my first bird, I guess, ended up shooting my first bird in Ohio. It was an eastern, and uh, I was totally hooked after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's what I tell everybody that come into my shop. If you don't want an, another hobby, don't go turkey hunting. Exactly. Because if, once you go and once you get into the bird, it's just it's it's like you're addicted immediately. But uh, since then, I've traveled. I go to I don't know how many world slams I've got. Probably fifteen or sixteen and uh, grand slams. I don't know twenty something. Um, yeah. But yeah, I go every year and try to do Kansas and Nebraska and Florida and of course Kentucky and Tennessee and. And then I do the ghouls and the oscillated, uh, usually not both in the same year, but I have shot two world slams both in the same year. And that wow. was, that's a lot of traveling. Yeah, that's a lot of traveling, but that that's uh, quite an adventure. Oh, yes, I love it. I love the, the Mexico hunts. The, the ghouls hunt is just really great, and that oscillated hunt is, is special to me. Uh, yeah. I mean, all the other students feeding the parrots and the Kawatamundis and the white-lipped peccaries and all that, and the brocket deer and all that stuff, just in addition to the into the birds. It's, and, and once you see one of those oscillated, then you get that thing down, it just looks like a pile of emeralds laying there. It's just gorgeous. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they truly are pretty birds, that is, that's for sure. And you've got some pictures of some oscillateds on your website, too, for those that yeah. Don't really know what one of those jokers looks like. It's worth uh, going over to Harry's site and taking a look at those birds. So because the interview with Harry contains so much great information, we talked for a little over an hour. So I've cut this interview into three parts. You've just got through listening to part one of the episode with Harry Whitehead. So tune in next week for part two of the episode with Harry Whitehead, where Harry's going to talk to us about freeze-dried turkey heads versus the artificial turkey heads, how to prepare your bird for taxidermy, importing turkeys into the U.S. from Mexico, and how to get those turkeys back in the U.S. without having them seized by customs. It's an episode that you won't want to miss. 
So thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending some of it with us. Hope you have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.